Okay, if we can uh, grab a seat and we'll get started. Um, good morning, everyone. And uh, just want to begin and say, I don't think it's, an, uh, it's inaccurate. Um, and, you know, it might even be an understatement to describe God as the God of the extreme. That sometimes he uses extreme measures to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. Just think about the the vastness of his creation and the expanse of the universe, or even considering the complexity of our own human body. And then consider just, uh, you know, considering just those, we can't help but see that God has gone to great lengths to disclose how unlike us that he is. And certainly when we ponder and, and meditate on the extent of his great love that he showed us in Christ, It's not hard to conclude that God is the God of the extreme. Then when we take that concept and begin to use it as a lens to see how he's acted on behalf of his covenant people, we start to understand that really everything in our lives, whether enjoyable or painful, whether in plenty or in want, whether in peace or in struggle, the Lord is committed to accomplishing in us what he knows is the essential thing we need to finish the race that is set before us. We're about to see in the life of David in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel how God brought David to a point in his life where he was going to either embrace the Lord or uh, embrace the, excuse me or dismiss the Lord. You might conclude uh, in the start of this chapter that what happens is merely that David got what he deserved. We might explain it as he had it coming to him, or what goes around comes around, or that he is reaping what he had sown. Um, And that's not entirely incorrect. David had been living completely out of fellowship with the Lord for about 16 months. He had been ransacking numerous towns and villages and leaving no, no one alive to cover up his raids. He had appealed to Achish, the Philistine king, to go into battle with them against Israel. And most disconcerting, at no time during these 16 months is there any indication that David was seeking the Lord to follow him. So in one sense, it's not surprising what we're about to see happen next in David's life. So before we get into the scriptures, please pray with me. Father, it's so good to be uh, here today to be with your people, to be with one another, to be able to worship you uh, a little later this morning and to hear your word preached and to, to feed at your table. Uh, but right now as we come together and look again into your word, we pray that uh, you indeed would be our, our teacher, that the Spirit would lead us into all the truth, and that we would uh, hear it and understand it and apply it to our lives. So we give you this, uh, this hour, this time in the words, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at the first six verses of chapter 30. And let me read those. It says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 
David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. Well, at the end of chapter 29, we saw in Dan's excellent teaching of that chapter that that God had spared David from becoming a part of the Philistine army that was about to go into battle against Saul, his sons, and the Israelite army. To say, the, to say the least, God had intervened mercifully, preventing David and his men from being guilty of abandoning Israel against their enemies. So David, so being dismissed by Achish, they begin the long three-day, three-day trek back to Ziklag. We can only speculate that David had many hours to contemplate not just what had happened at Aphek, but also perhaps this entire time that he had been living outside of Israel among the Philistines. So no doubt David and his men were anticipating a joyous reunion with their family as they marched back towards Ziklag. And for obvious reason, not only would rejoining them be preferable to battle, but they would be glad to again enjoy the company of their wives and sons and daughters. So as they neared the last hill overlooking uh, the town of Ziklag, you could expect that their anticipation of seeing their loved ones was uh, reaching a new higher level. However, the haze of the smoke coming from the area in the direction of Ziklag stirred their hearts with the fear of the unimaginable. As they crested that last hill and looked down on the town, their worst fears were, were confirmed. The ziklag they left was not the ziklag that they were now seeing. The unthinkable had occurred. Disaster had struck. In the IT world that I work in, we do a lot of disaster recovery planning in order to make sure that in the event of some unexpected cat- catastrophe, our business can still function. We make contingency contingency plans for every aspect of our computer network. It's a painstaking yet needful exercise to undergo if we intend to recover from a disaster. And we've all seen various forms of disaster strike our country, be it from weather, our enemies, or certainly a pandemic. But now David and his men were facing a disaster that struck all of them to the core of their being. Not only was their town smoldering from fire, but all their families were nowhere to be found. What this obviously meant was, this, was they were now either captive or worse, worse, killed in another location. We know from the author of 1 Samuel what David and his men didn't know at the time, that the Amalekites had spared everyone but had taken them captive. Now David and his men's reactions are understandably heart-wrenching. They cry and, and weep and scream until there's no strength left them, in them anymore to cry. Then what had begun in deep grief devolved into bitterness, then accusation and blame, and then threatening to stone David. And why not? These men had left everything to follow him. They trusted him. They fought for him. He was their leader, their future king, the one that they had looked to for their lives and the lives of their families. Yet he had essentially misled them. Not only had they followed him into possibly fighting with the Philistines against their own countrymen, they had also left Ziklag and their families defenseless. Even all the Philistine armies had left the area too, so the Amalekites struck when there was virtually no opposition. It was David's fault, and they intended 
to make him pay. Well, how would David respond? Would he become defenseless? Would he retaliate against these accusations? Would he strike the ones who are about to stone him? Or would he humble himself and return to his Lord? Let's read the next few verses, beginning in verse 6, the last part of that verse. It says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So David, so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Well, it's pretty clear that David responded by the latter, by, as it says, that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Not only the events in this chapter, but really David's whole life and his elevation of being king of Israel turned on this response. We'll look more closely at what this meant later, but I want to point out that everything that follows flows out of this response. And while we're not told what he says to those wanting to stone him, we are told that he sent for Abiathar the priest to bring him the ephod. This was the prescribed means to seek the Lord's will and counsel. So David first returns to doing what he has neglected doing the last 16 months. And notice that he asked two things of the Lord. Shall I pursue and shall I overtake? And notice too the Lord's gracious answer. Not only pursue and overtake, but the Lord gives him the additional promise that he would rescue those he's lost. The disaster recovery plan of the Lord must have filled David with such faith that all 600 men now saw in him a renewed determination to follow his Lord fully. So they all set out to take on this marauding band of Amalekites. But notice that even when 200 of them become too exhausted to continue on, David leads them on, undaunted by the reduction of his forces, being fully convinced of the Lord's leading and faithfulness. Now what we come to is surely one of the most amazing parts of the story. Let's read the next few verses. It says, They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid about against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Well, it's not even clear that David and his men knew which direction they should go in pursuit. But providentially, whatever direction they headed in, it turns out to be the one that leads them to this dying Egyptian slave of one of the Amalekite raiders. Having been left for dead, uh, they come across him in the open country and begin reviving him with bread and water, followed by fig fig cakes and raisin clusters. 
Once he's able to speak again, David asked him, where, who do you belong to and where are you from? What he discloses is a gold mine of information. His intelligent report divulges everything David and his men need to know in pursuit of the Amalekite band. Being assured that what he's saying amounts to far more than a steel dossier, they agreed to help one another out. The Amalekites' location in return for not killing him or returning him to his master. Then they're off to the Amalekites' home base of operations where David and his men can launch their attack. An attack they did. Let's read the next few verses. It says in verse 16, And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over, the, all, over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. <clears throat> and David struck them down from twilight until evening the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. The Amalekites were so consumed with all they had recently acquired that it was time to celebrate. This party had all the right ingredients, eating and drinking and dancing. They were strung across the land in such a way that there were no watchmen. Their defenses were down, and the last thing on their mind was anything was anyone about to strike them. Apparently, David's only strategy is to wait until twilight to begin attacking. So they fight all night and evening until the next day. We don't have really any idea of how many Amalekites there were, but mention is made of about 400 young men escaping, which, remember, is the total number of David's men. So there most likely were a great number of them. But really notice how thoroughly and completely this recovery was. In very emphatic language, the author stresses how everything was recovered. Nothing was missing. All was brought back, and even above and beyond what was from Ziklag. They even captured extensive flocks and herds. This was indeed a total rescue that the Lord had promised. In fact, it was such a decisive victory in recovery that all the spoil that was captured and all the flocks and herds and all the livestock was deemed David's spoil. But then there's this issue regarding the men who had stayed behind because they were too exhausted to go further and fight. No sooner had David and his men secured a great victory that they had to contend with internal factions arising from the earlier separation. Beginning in verse 21, it says, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left behind at the brook Bezor. They went out to meet David and, and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. <clears throat> then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this manner? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. 
<clears throat> Returning to the brook Brezor, we've, where they had stayed with the baggage, it says that David came near to the people and greeted them. This was a greeting extended to ask about their welfare and really a greeting of peace. But all these wicked and worthless fellows were of a mind to cut them out of any of the spoil. They obviously took it personally that they didn't join with them in the fight. No fight, no spoil. They obviously, uh, they could have their children back, then get out of here. But David was having none of it. He steps in to mediate what could have become a major division among his followers. He reasons with them that no one would even listen to them. That staying with the baggage has, ve- has a very important purpose and that remaining united in any fight or effort requires that each person fulfill his responsibility so that they all could share in the victory that the Lord gives. And that was David's point. The victory was the Lord's. He preserved them. He gave them into their hand. He gave them all the spoil. So to claim it in a way that pits one against another is only to invite division and discord. David not only declares that won't happen in this instance, he codifies it into the fabric of life in Israel going forward, indicating that in the Lord's kingdom, over which he will rule, everyone will share alike. And then the last few verses, beginning verse 26, it says, When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negeb and Jatir and Aror and Sifmoth and Eshtemoah and Rakal and the cities of the Jemuelites and the cities of the Kenites and Hormah and Borashan and Athok and Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. <clears throat> so lastly, we come to the end of the chapter where we see David's gesture of sending some of the spoil to select cities of Judah. Rather than keeping it all for himself, he sees this as an occasion to exalt his Lord's victory by sending the elders of these cities a present. It was a way to announce and acknowledge that God had been gracious and kind and faithful to him, and he wanted them to share in his spoil. This was also a way to thank them for caring for him and his men during all their wanderings among them. Now, I want to go back and have us look at the events in the chapter, as I said at the beginning, through the lens that that God is willing to bring loss, removal, defeat, even disaster into our lives. That's what's required to bring us back into fellowship with him. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm thinking about the fact that God could remove something valuable uh, from me and my life isn't the kind of thoughts I really get excited about. Uh, I'd much rather re- uh, discuss the topics, other topics of the Christian life. But... When we address this issue, we tend to place the focus on what we lose rather than on what we gain through the process. Even though it doesn't appear that David had elevated his wives and family over the Lord, God in his grace used what was precious to him to jolt him into recognizing how far he had strayed from the Lord. That was God being gracious to David. But the combination of the law of his family the raising of Ziklag, the devastation he saw and experienced in the lives of his men, and especially being faced with death at the hands of his own men, served to realign his life with God's plans for him. But how did that happen? Well, you could kind of say this was do or die time. Everything was on the line. It was 
it was time to take a stand. Or as we say in the slang, it was time to fish or cut bait. So it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But before we talk about what that means, let's, let's talk about what that doesn't mean. Using uh, Dale Davis's commentary, he points out several things that it doesn't mean and says it's crucial in our day that we clarify that. First, it's not some kind of gospel magic. It's not a quick fix. It's Jesus is not our personal pain reliever to get us on top of life's aches. It just does not, it's just not something so superficial. Second, it's not merely venting or letting go emotionally. It might be helpful for believers to open up and get things off their chest or even cry tears, but is that actually strengthening oneself in the Lord? David's men wailed to the point of exhaustion. Saul expressed great emotion and let it all out to the medium and indoor. But neither Saul nor David's men strengthened themselves in the Lord their God. Third, nor is it openly expressing anger and assigning blame. Perhaps it's appropriate to have righteous anger and hold people responsible, but that is not strengthening oneself in the Lord. So if it's not some spiritual hocus-pocus or working ourselves up in an emotional state or even accurately getting to the source of a problem, then what does it mean that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God? Or to put it in another way, if you were told to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God, what would you understand you need to do? Or if you told someone that, what would you mean by saying that? Well, it means first that the Lord is David's personal God. Yahweh is not only the God of Israel, but he is David's God. Not only the shepherd of Israel, but David is saying again, the Lord is my shepherd. And for us, we're not just acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, but personally claiming, as it says in Galatians 2.20, that he is the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. Do you see the difference? That's what David meant. David was again claiming that Yahweh was his God and he was God's. I think the writer in a Puritan prayer says it as well as anyone. He says, you have shown me that because you are mine, I can live by your life, be strong in your strength, be guided in your wisdom. And so I can pitch my thoughts and heart in you. This is, this is the exchange of wonderful love for me to have you have myself and for you to have me and, give, and to give me thyself. Then it also means remembering the promises and affirmations of his word, what it says about us as well as what it says about God's character. We can get a clearer picture of this when we look back at 1 Samuel twenty three sixteen when Jonathan went and found David, and it says he strengthened his hand in God. Well, what did that look like? Well, the next, next verse explains that as Jonathan tells David, the hand of Saul, my father, will never find you, but you will reign over Israel. Jonathan reaffirmed and emphasized the promise of the kingdom that Yahweh had already made to David. And in so doing, reminded David that God is true and faithful to his word, and can be trusted to accomplish his will concerning David. And then it also means using our access into his using our access into his presence. When David had Abiathar the priest bring the ephod, David was entering into God's presence through the means God had provided. While we don't have a priest that has an ephod, we have a greater high priest through whom we can draw near to the throne of grace 
to receive mercy and find grace in time of need. So with this renewed faith and godly perspective, David begins to see things different in a different light with a God-centered focus once again settled in his heart and mind to do the will of God. This becomes very evident when a third of the men can't go on in the journey. David doesn't lose heart. He doesn't lose focus. There's no mention of a critical spirit, but rather they're assigned to watch the baggage and he leads the remaining 400 onward. More than likely, he had already settled in his spirit the words that Jonathan had spoken earlier when he and his armor bearer took on a battalion of Philistines. Remember, he said, nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few. Then with this, then with this left for dead Egyptian is found, David, with compassion and care, first has his men provide what he needs, then perceives the hand of God in this astounding find. Let's not lose sight of the picture that this incident presents. Here's a man cast off by his master because he's sick and of no use to him anymore, probably because he'd just made off with numerous Eklag residents, so he's got people to spare. But little did he know that that would be his and the Amalekites' undoing. This man is a slave, cast off as useless, and left for dead, but found, fed bread and grapes by David, revived, secured, and set free. Sound familiar? That's us. David is again portrayed as the future Savior who finds us, restores us, feeds us himself, setting us free to serve him. Likewise, the defeat of the Malachites and the subsequent rescue and recovery also is a foreshadowing of Christ's salvation that he will secure for us. Like our enemies of sin, death, and the devil, the Amalekites were soundly defeated and not one of all David's and his, and his men's family members was lost. So also, Christ will certainly and perfectly save all that the Father gives him. As he said in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But it could be argued that how David viewed and handled the spoil that was recovered is the most significant outcome of this entire episode. With this monumental victory came adulation and praise of David. Even those who just a few days earlier were ready to stone him are now singing his praises and attributing the success and all the spoil that came with it to David. <clears throat> but David was having none of it. There's nothing like an overwhelming hall of booty that can divide men faster and more deeply. That element among David's men who are deemed wicked and worthless fellows were showing their true colors when it came to dividing the spoil. It was they who earned it. They had defeated the Malachites. And none of those baggage handlers had any right to any of the spoil. Take your families and be gone. But using brotherly counsel, common sense rationale, and decisive leadership, he completely diffuses the situation by highlighting the grace of the Lord in this victory. Unless grace permeates our lives, unless grace is the centerpiece of our marriages, unless grace reigns in our church, 
The flesh in all its sinful manifestations will take center stage and destroy all that the Lord desires to accomplish. David clearly viewed the spoil not as his, but as, but as the Lord's. So much so that he redistributes much of it to the other towns as an indication that the Lord was at work. And he wanted them to share in the spoil of the enemies of the Lord too. While God is right and just and sovereign to use extreme means to correct, discipline, and redeem his own, being the infinite God, he is unlimited in ordaining what he graciously chooses to use. We've seen today that God brought about what appeared to be a tragic event to draw David back to himself. In contrast to that, I'd like to close with a short account of how God used a much less drastic event to bring a lost sinner to himself. We were given a book called Prayer for Prodigals several years ago that is a daily guide of scripture-filled prayers directed to God for our prodigal. I highly recommend it. The conclusion in the book is the account of a man named William. It says, William didn't have time for his mother's Christian faith. Though she spoke with him frequently about Jesus, and he often caught her praying for his salvation, he kept going his own way. Before she died, she gave him a Bible. He sold it when he needed some extra cash. Still, Williams was, William was what you would call a successful prodigal. He graduated from medical school and began working as a physician in a hospital. One day, a man was brought in who had been in a serious accident on the job. William did his best to help him, but it was clear the man would soon die from his injuries. William broke the news to him as best as he could. The man had two requests. He asked to send his last sent, he asked to see his landlady so he could pay his rent, and he requested that she bring him his Bible. In the days that follow, he kept the Bible close. He read it as long as he could. When he no longer had the strength to hold it, he kept it under his covers. He died a short time later. In the days that a nurse was cleaning his room after his death and found the Bible, what shall we do with this, she asked William, handing it to him. William's own words recount what happened next. I took the Bible. Could I trust my eyes? It was my own Bible. The Bible which my mother had given me when I left my parents' home, and which later, when short of money, I sold for a small amount. My name was still in it, written in my mother's hand. With a deep sense of shame, I looked upon the precious book. It had given comfort and refreshing to this unfortunate man in his last hours. It had been a guide to him into eternal life so that he had been enabled to die in peace and happiness. And this book, this last gift of my mother, I had actually sold for a ridiculous price. Be it sufficient to say that the regained possession of my Bible was the cause of my, uh, was the cause of my conversion. William's mother never saw her prayers for her son answered on earth, but she did see them answered in heaven. Through her prayers and faith, God used her to reach her son years after her life in this world was over. She placed her trust in him, and and he showed himself faithful. After all, he is the one who promised, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Dr. William P. Mackay, Mackay eventually left medicine and became a minister. God used him to inspire many through his books and hymns. His best-known hymn, Revive Us Again, shows a passionate and faithful heart filled with a contagious love for his master. One one stanza, We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light 
who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Let's pray. Dear gracious Father, we are so thankful that you see our lives from beginning to end. You, you know us. You know us better than we even know ourselves. You know what we need and what it takes for us to continue to walk with you. And even when we wander and stray, you graciously um, work to, to bring about circumstances that uh, get our attention and uh, bring us back to you. We can only ask that we would walk closely with you every day, that we would see your hand at work, that we would acknowledge that you are in control, that you love us with an everlasting love that never fails. So we give you thanks for what we've heard today, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, just at the, at the end here, is there any observations that uh, you've made as we went through this that you'd like to share or any, any questions, any comments that uh, anyone has about what we, what we just read and went through? Oh, it's called Prayer for Prodigals. It's, uh, the author is James Banks.